0: Welcome to Syntalk. Cintoc. The Talk is around the table today discuss the markets for farmers. We'll think about farmers, farming, and the market and non-market institutions surrounding them. Our agricultural markets, essentially land markets, our crops bought and sold. Who grows wood? How messy and fair is the journey of the produce from the farm to the plate? Are there as many types of farmers as crops? Do most farmers somehow always struggle and why? Why are there so many small cultivators around the world? Does nature need to be protected from agriculture? Why are farmers always price takers? Are farms inevitably becoming factories? And what is the very long term future of farmers and agriculture? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Mekhla Krishnapurthy, she is a social anthropologist and is an ethnographer of state and markets. She teaches at Ashoka University. Dr. Nitin D. Rai. He is a fellow at a in Bangalore. His interests are political ecology of wildlife conservation. And Dr. Vamsi Vakula Bharanam. He teaches economics at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. His interests are political economy, economic development and agrarian change. So Nathan, why don't we start with you? Uh, maybe let's start in the forests or so somewhere close there. At the borders of forests. What happens there? Is there something remotely resembling the activity of agriculture and farming happening there? or? You spend some time in some parts. Um, do these notions, concepts carry there? Is there something remotely resembling a market surrounding whatever produce comes out of a forest? Let's 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 pick something from there, and we'll see where we go.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me and to be part of this conversation. Thank you for coming. Um, so the the farm and the forest um, has always been coexisting in some sense for, for, for a long, long time. And uh, so there's always been a continuum between the farm and the forest or the forest and the farm. Um, settled agriculture has a long, long history, uh, but a large proportion of Indian, the Indian population, uh, the Adivasis particularly, have depended and lived in and farmed the forest.
0: But are it's, farms, the way we conventionally think of it, just cleared forests? or
1: So they were cleared forests and they were shifting all the time. Mm-hmm. because you didn't have the sort of facilitative mechanisms that you see in modern agriculture, uh, terracing um, or inputs uh, such as manure from the forest. Right. Uh, so you had a shifting agriculture system that's still prevalent in parts of the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the areas that you see in Central and Southern India, you still had, till very recently, shifting cultivation. Now, there is uh, there are accounts, historical accounts, of how the British... Um, Uh, proscribed shifting cultivation and settled valley farmers and about 150 years uh, deprived adivasis of any form of cultivation and arborealized them meaning with the rationale being it was what Ursula Munster calls invisible labor where the Adivasis were needed for, say, timber operations, right, and uh, or a whole range of other operations, so the labor
0: was needed elsewhere.
1: Exactly, hmm. right, and not n- necessarily for the farming. So, but you did have a very targeted policy on on getting settled agriculture going for taxation and for crop production and a whole range of agrarian outcomes. But so but you, by
0: that time, this notion of settled agriculture was already there, right? It wasn't being in. It wasn't an invention in that context. Not at all. So So we're looking at... Carried to that
1: that domain. So you had, for instance, you had uh, necessary production of rice Mm -hmm. uh, along the Tungabhadra. So the Vijayanagara empire needed rice production along the Tungabhadra. So you had all of these various uh, zonations of settled and in the farm, in the forest areas, you had a completely different form of practice. Right. Right. Um, So the Adivasis were, therefore, then denied... Um, access to land and or ownership of land. So their their dependence then became on the produce from the forest. Uh, so you have uh, honey, lac, uh, tendu that continues to date, um, and a whole range of these, what they called minor forest produce, which we now call non-timber forest produce, to to separate it from timber, which was a colonial British interest.
0: And what, what what's minor about them? Just the size of the produce, the...
1: Um, right. What exactly is minor? So they were called minor under the British because it was non- timber. So mm-hmm. the timber was what the, what the British were interested they in.
0: They were not valuable enough, large enough,
1: they significant
0: been, enough, economics
1: wise. Uh, in some sense, they were what the people that were deprived of their place in the forest were made to rely on. So it was a. It was so you did have systems, and I would, I'm sure uh, the others in the room would. Would would be able to tell us about the the size of these markets, for instance, right. tendo to, today goes for bd, uh, but you had lac then or honey or some some other form which weren't mm-hmm. of the size of the timber markets, uh, but were still you people had to make do. Um, it, it, it's it's, so a, it's
0: in a way a size of market test. Wamsi is that is that is that fair enough? So, relatively small markets, whether it's tendu leaves or whatever, obviously that market is presumably smaller than the market for rice. Uh, So, as as we get into these minor crops, do those markets behave differently? I mean, do they have different structure, characteristics, dynamics, and so on?
2: So, uh, you know, part of the story here, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, uh, with regard to, uh, you know, Adivasi's uh, Uh, you know, tending for themselves, you know, for their own subsistence. Uh, And part of it was meant to go out of the forest and be sold, you know, outside the forest.
0: So uh, your, their own subsistence and meaning it was not meant for the market to begin
2: with. I think, you know, it was both uh, meant for subsistence as well as, you know, to be sold in the market. Sure. And, and uh, uh, I think, you know, it's a relative comparison. Uh, It's basically the size of the market value of the market. Uh, I think that's what Nitin is, uh, you know, basically referring to, and it's you know it's not uh, uh, the same kind of market as timber, so in that sense, you know, it's the volume and you know uh, the the value, you know, that gets traded. I think that makes it. Uh, minor. But
0: is there is there, uh, are there are there sister notions of minor and major markets? I mean, there seem to be minor and major crops, or very roughly speaking. Um, do do those markets, maybe you have something to say on this, Mikla. Would it be fair to say that somewhat minor crops have different kinds of markets? Now, obviously, maybe, maybe they do, but is it significant or important enough is the question.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we can go into this, but I think what Vamsi was saying, it's sort of you have For a long time, we've thought of things in terms of subsistence and market orientation. So people using them for their own consumption. And that's not just for food, but for a whole range of things pertaining to your life and your livelihood and then thinking about them as market-oriented, which is actually made for sale. Right. Right? And sometimes something that you produce for yourself may also be sold in the market if you have adequate surplus. But it is the question of the orientation of that particular society. Right. And I think particularly anthropologists have spent a lot of time thinking about subsistence mm. as the fundamental way in which the Indian village, the Indian agriculture has really sort of been. And then the market was an imposition so how
0: old would be the notion of agricultural market globally, world over?
3: No, so actually now I would say in if we're thinking about it today, it's now quite, I think most of us would agree that there's a pre-colonial market and there's been colonial markets for agricultural produce and very much contemporary ones too. But I would say, that, you know, up until the 1960s and 70s and mm-hmm. even till date, a lot of anthropologists would go to the village and really think in terms of subsistence versus market orientation. Right. And I think what historians have taught us is that, you know, peasant communities and even forest communities have been drawn into market relations for a very long time. Right. So in that sense, I would say that this dichotomy or this way of thinking about it remains helpful. Because, you know, the farmers I work with, all grow something for themselves, right? Right, But they're also market-oriented. So this either-or that we made, that the moral economy is really a subsistence economy and then the market came from outside and, you know, changed relations completely, doesn't seem to have worked itself out in quite that manner, right? Over a long period of time. But where I would actually come in on to what, you know, Nitin was saying would be to think about, what does it mean to cultivate land mm-hmm. and what does it mean to own land? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what Nitin was saying, which is very interesting, is that sort of Adivasis were denied the land. Right. But they still continued to both forage and cultivate. So this interesting question with minor forest producers is that is it cultivated? Or, is or it just yeah. Is it so? You know, Anna Singh talks about this with the mushroom Mushrooms, that yeah. it's actually salvage accumulation, right? Right, that it's accumulation from foraging, and that you can't actually grow these. So there's no production uh, that farmers are involved in in the forest, which is also more complicated because, of course, many farmers in forests also cultivate.
1: Would
0: you but agree, Nathan?
1: Uh, absolutely. But uh, I want to add and take it mm. a step further, which is that uh, from our experience in amongst the Soliga Adivasis in Chamaraj Nagra district of Karnataka, they mm. burnt the forest mm. and produced a vegetation type that gave them tubers, gave them forage, gave them a whole range of plant products that was managed and at, at, you know, square kilometers, hundreds of square kilometers of the landscape, and like you see in Madhya Pradesh, so there was a... So, so there they was literally grew
0: a different kind of forest for that mm. kind of forest produce. Absolutely. So it
1: wasn't just going into this naturally occurring mm. forest exactly. and just, just... yeah. So they farmed the forest right. in some sense, right? Right. And uh, so you had shifting cultivation that produced millets, beans, and a whole range of crops, uh, and then this other forest produce... And that continuum you, you you see in the Western Ghats. Areca plantations, for instance, The Western Ghats, where the Brahmin farmers in the Western Ghats were producing areca for the market, right, have for hundreds of years, have seen the forest as produced, giving them manure, right, and a whole range of other uh, necessary products for the agriculture. But is
0: there something between the subsistence kind of uh, economy and this market kind of economy? Is there a m- more informal barter exchange kind of thing? Does, does that come in a formal enough... A strict enough way.
1: From again going back to the, the Soliga uh, experience, yeah. there was a diversity of of products, right? So mm-hmm. you have uh, and uh, and clearly not all of it. The the produce from the from the th- th- there's an interesting uh, uh, point that Tanya Lee makes in her book Land's End, which she says there's market as opportunity, shifting to market as compulsion. Mm. Right, so that's the that's what we're seeing, and mm. uh, while some of it has occurred earlier, mm. uh, you're seeing some of it happen now. Uh, which is, so you had a system whether would barter, uh, accessing markets with produce that had a market when it turned up, to you know to doing it completely for the market today. Like they grow coffee, right. a whole range of different drivers that made them go to produce coffee, which is wild boar infestation or just coercive uh, wildlife conservation policy that's pushed them onto small pieces of land. That's interesting. They sold their labor to the coffee, but now they've had to then do something with that piece of land uh, and divide their labor between plantation and on their own piece of we'll land. we get back so to this. coffee.
0: What comes to mind for you, Amsi, when you think of agricultural market? How is it different or what is an agricultural market for you? Do you think of it as being different from market per se, market for other kinds of things?
2: You know, to me, uh, you know, from the discipline of economics, Mm. and, you know, we can, now that we have people from multiple disciplines, we can discuss it. There seem to be two uh, distinguishing features of agricultural markets. So one of them is, you know, uh, it's probably the closest that there is to a perfectly competitive market. And that's because, you know, there are millions of producers Uh, and uh, they become uh, price takers. You know, they have very little market power because, you know, they're bringing all these millions of producers are bringing their produce to the market. And uh, therefore, you know, market uh, regulates, governs, you know, market. You mean farmers being price takers? Yes, producers. Yeah, yeah. Producers are farmers are price takers. But at the same time, uh, you know, in a large number of contexts, at a micro level, at a local level, uh, there is also, uh, you know, existence of market power in the hands of intermediaries, market intermediaries uh, who, uh, you know, relate to farmers, you know, through markets. So, for instance, you know, you could have uh, uh, interlocked markets, you know, there, there could be money lenders who have power over the uh, farmer through, you know, uh, credit disbursement or there could be merchants who control access to the market. Uh, or there could be landlords who control the land markets uh, or, you know, you could have interlocking or interlinkages among these. So you can have product credit interlinkages, for instance, or, you know, any of these, you know, what do you
0: mean? What do you mean by product? credit? So,
2: interlink- so for instance, you know, uh, if you, if you have the same person, uh, you know, handling both the product market, you know, being the merchant, in other words, and, so, in uh, a way, they
0: trade finance or whatever is made available wa- by them to the farmers.
2: Yes. Something. So, like that. so merchant also provides credit. Sure. So, so merchant is also the money lender.
0: I think the interesting question is why are the markets not like this? What's what is it about? So, sure, perfect competition, sure interlocking, but why why don't these features extend to other kinds of markets for other kinds of
2: produce? So, you know, in in uh, uh, in the countryside, in villages, you know, in across the developing world uh, there is an, uh, there are two features, you know, one is the existence of, you know, a broad condition of informality mm-hmm. and also existence of localized uh, power hierarchies. They could be race, caste, you know, uh, gender, uh, you know, based on these hierarchies, you know, markets also have, uh, evolved, you know, uh, uh, you know, they were co-evolved in many ways and, and, uh, existence of local power, Allows for you know and informality allows for markets to get interlocked or intermixed. Uh, so interlocking is another way of saying you know there is concentrated uh, power in the hands of one person. Uh, you know so so just to give you but
0: things like informality or family led enterprises in a way in whichever shape or form should lead to like lower costs or something to that effect, higher productivity. That should, it should, should lead to value getting transferred to the farmers. It, it seems to be the reverse. It looks so, like.
2: So here it is not the question of farmers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, uh, having, you know, the advantages of that informality. Sure. It's farmers who are at the receiving end of the power, you know, market power that emanates from these interlinking uh, practices or interlocked practices. So the
0: more downstream parts of that s- supply chain or value chain are more formal and the farther exactly. up
2: they go. Exactly. So just to give you an example... Uh, you know, a, a moneylender has the power to deny credit, but if the moneylender also becomes the merchant, then, you know, what the moneylender can do He's is... can also uh, deny
0: access to the market.
2: Exactly. So the way it comes out is, you know, unless you grow a certain kind of crop that I determine is good for you, then I won't buy it from you in the market. Right. So, so, the, so the fact of the interlinking, you know, magnifies the market power, you know, that this intermediary has over the farmer. So, informality, you know, works against, you know, works adversely, you know, for the farm, you know, large number of producers. So, they end up paying high interest rates, they end up losing, you know, uh, a commission to the merchant, the same person, but they also end up losing autonomy over their cropping but pattern. But why isn't
0: there competition among the creditors and... Do, just, do you notice yeah. this a lot do you no, notice so this I think it is
3: in, it's an incredibly important feature of hmm. these markets and I mean I would like to come back to it because I think sure. once we get into it it will get deeper but to answer your larger question of are these different markets right. and then maybe we get into the characteristics of these markets are these different yeah so you know in some ways I think they are but I think they are also you know there is a way of thinking about them is not that different mm-hmm. right um, and then I think there are specific things that make them quite different so you know, to go back to that example I was telling you at the village, right. anthropologists for a long time have seen basically Indian farming to be about a community, subsistence, or, you know, a village economy where there has been a lot of exchange. So they effectively theorized it to be non-market exchange. Right. Agricultural production and exchange was actually a non-monetary institution. It was a non-market institution. And it was largely determined by exchanges in kind, not in cash, which means that exchange itself in agriculture has always been much more than farmers selling their produce to, you know, a merchant or a buyer. It has included labor payments. It has included payments amongst farmers or exchanging seed, for example, because one farmer had seed and the other doesn't. So actually, agriculture is as an exchange environment, if you think about it, not as market, but as exchange an extraordinarily rich and diverse set of exchanges, right? Both monetary, non monetary, exchanges in cash, exchanges in kind, labor for labor, helping out during the harvest. So many parts of the agricultural process, including then buying and selling. Right that happen at the village level including say shares that you may pay to your laborer in kind, but you may also pay to other members of the village community customary amount of grain that would often be redistributed to members of the community right these are all old features of Indian agriculture they are features that you will still see in many agricultural communities including the most commercialized ones right in India today right. so firstly I think in agricultural, communities. So even if
0: one thinks of them transactional terms, uh not everything is monetary necessarily. So
3: agricultural exchange or agrarian worlds have always involved a whole range of forms of exchange, some of which have been market-based or and, you know, monetary in a certain way, others which have been actually what we would call non-market, non-monetary or customary. So that would be one way to think about, you know, this. So anthropologists focused on that, right, for a very long time. And mm. the market was seen as the sort of alien imposition right. that came with colonialism and then, right. you know, proceeded to rapidly unfold. Um, and that it was never seen as part or intrinsic, right? But for
0: example, even in the earlier mm. description that he just gave, Mekla, are there the equivalents of the credit market and yeah, things of that sort? Y- so y-
3: yeah, so actually what historians and even other anthropologists have pointed out is actually those things always existed. Mm. And they were often monetary, mm. including taxation by revenue officials, a share that was paid both in cash and kind, mm. um, and that actually pre-colonially and colonially... There has been something called quote unquote the market, right? right? Which many anthropologists did not see. Part of this was the desire to see stability to see tradition versus modernity, right. the market as a modern form, right. village communities as traditional. Right. Uh, part of it was to be able to think about Indian agrarian communities as stable hierarchical forms. This is Jumo. You know, that this was the Jajmani system. Yeah. Right? That it was all caste-based and it was redistributive and there was a moral economy yeah. that you owe different people in a hierarchy a certain thing. So this would be the anthropological approach, right? Whereas for economists, actually, I would... I think a lot of the time, the market is described as sort of an abstract, large abstract form, right? <laughs> that it's the no. opposite. It is disembedded, right? And, this is actually exactly how the anthropologists, the old anthropologists also they saw also it. it yeah. Right. The market was a disembedded thing. It's not a social institution or a social form. And that was Polanyi, right? The Great Transformation was all about this. So it is not right. surprising that the anthropologists who thought the market was this alien imposition were also in that Polanian tradition, thought of it as this disembedded. You know, abstract structure of supply and demand that was happening.
0: Now, in my view, now but but hmm. this this so-called this embedded thing, obviously it came via policy, came via wherever it came from. At least yeah. something came from somewhere. Yeah. It may have come as a cloud of sorts. Did it have characteristics that were not pre-existing?
3: Okay. So, what I I would argue, and I think political because economy in general, across disciplines, across anthropology and uh, economics, um, political economists have shown, I think, over the last many years that the market was never that. The market has never been this disembedded thing. Yeah. right? It's never been an abstraction, but it is also an abstraction. So it's not that the sure, market sure, sure. is entirely embedded, and nor is it that it is entirely disembedded. Yeah. So the whole intellectual movement, I think, in recent times, has been to think about how is the market at once embedded and abstract and what are the material processes by which markets are actually made and maintained Hmm. that they are not natural institutions and certainly they are not abstractions that then operationalize themselves or the world sort of just maps itself onto an abstract model so i would say the big change when so if you think about markets in those terms then agricultural markets are not dissimilar to many other kinds of markets right if you think about amazon as a certain kind of marketplace, uh, it's full of a logistical life, yeah. and it's full of the same kinds of negotiations and tensions and exploitations of producers and of buyers and you know and consumers and the supply chain. So most goods, I mean, you know, if you were to look at the end product of many, um, you know, many things, this table, for example, we are back to the wood, in some ways. But we're also there looking at a really complicated logistical life. And I think the big movement in our thinking about markets has been to start approaching them like this.
0: I think the question is whether
3: this capital
0: M market is merely the more formal, uh, rule based avatar or version of all of these things that kind of existed in some shape or form. Or, Or are there features and characteristics which are which were not pre-existing and they exist now because of whatever has been imposed.
3: Right. But what I'm going to say is that the market itself, even the capital M market, is actually materially produced. Sure, sure, sure. sure, sure, Even the the abstraction is materially produced by economists and anthropologists. It it, it has to be
0: because it's about about something getting produced by human beings and people and families. So So I think once
3: you take that approach, agricultural markets both fit as markets.
0: To flip it another way, are you saying that the agricultural market is more difficult to abstract and others might be relatively easier to abstract. I'm saying actually,
3: you know, people are still trying to abstract it. Hmm. Uh, I mean, if you read economic policy today or our agricultural policy, it sounds pretty abstract sometimes (laughs) because most people don't spend time. Now, what I think has happened with agriculture is that it's incredibly vast and incredibly diverse. So I think then the kind of relationships that Vamsi were talking about are intra-regionally diverse. But
0: that's the problem of trying to inter- homogenize anything, right? Okay.
2: So. so, so you know, just a couple of distinctions. I mean, just to add, I agree with what Mekla said and let me uh, add a couple of things. Uh, one, you know, if you compare agricultural markets with uh, markets in manufacturing, produce sure. or uh, services, yeah. uh, you know, in manufacturing and services, you have monopolies or oligopolies. Okay. Whereas, you know, uh, production in agriculture is conducted by millions of uh, you know producers uh, across the world. So, so that's a key difference, you know, so nobody, no one producer or a group of producers will have that kind of power when you're thinking about farmers. On the other hand, you know, large agro-processing corporations, which may get the produce from all these millions of producers, may have monopoly, but that's already entering a different domain uh, because you're adding value through manufacturing or other kinds of activities to uh, you know, what is produced I think on the farm. The question
0: farm. again, Vamsi, is why? Because if, 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 let's say, the market for timber or wood is presumably less competitive than the market for rice or whatever the, on the producer side, the moment you move forward a little bit and move to tables and chairs and furniture and pencils and things of that sort. It, it looks like what you're implying is that it becomes slightly oligopolistic. It becomes the number of producers is fewer. Why? Why, why doesn't it stay as competitive? So as?
2: if you want a, uh, I mean, there's a technical answer, yeah, which yeah. is that, you know, uh, typically manufacturing, hmm. you know, uh, has increasing returns to scale. Hmm. You know, there is so economies of see. scale, you know, when you come to the manufacturing uh, sector, why doesn't it, why is it not
0: there in agriculture
2: agriculture it's there in a few crops but in a large number of crops you have what is known as constant returns to scale mm-hmm. even if you increase the size and scale of so production if i had a
0: 100 acre farm would i be super competitive compared to a half acre farm not work?
2: necessarily you no. know so uh, the the returns you get on one acre would be replicated over the 100 acres is that so yeah so so that, for that's for a crazy, large no? for a large number of crops that's that's one thing that uh, you know is true so you have something like constant returns to scale in agriculture for a large number of crops there are plantation crops of certain kinds you know where this principle doesn't work on the other hand uh, you know when there is a very different kind of uh, you know logic uh, you know which i should mention at this point since the context came up which is that you know there is an inverse relationship mm-hmm. between land holding size and uh, land productivity. Oh. So, which means small farmers tend to be, you know, much more productive in terms of the yields, you know, per uh, per land, acre or whatever. Yield per acre. Compared to large farmers. And, uh, you know, th- there are two, three reasons for that. I That's mean,
0: totally counterintuitive.
2: It, yeah, it, it's something that, you know, uh, has been tested across the developing world uh, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. And, you know, this is a very robust finding. And then, you know, people have, uh, you know, uh, delved into this question in greater depth and they've asked the question, why? And this inverse uh, relationship emerges mainly because, uh, you know, one, there are no monitoring costs. You know, if the family itself is performing labor on the farm. Then you know they don't need to monitor their own effort. So there is the
0: there's no principal agency problem. You don't exactly. have exactly. There to is track. no
2: principal agent problem. So you know the, there yeah. is no agent. You know yeah. who could potentially put in lesser effort. You till effort. your
0: own land. You do your own things. Exactly.
2: So. Principal and agent are the same here. Right. The other uh, thing that happens is you know uh, the family farm also uh, you know tries to uh, base its effort on you know how many uh, ha- working hands there are. And how many feeding mouths there are. <laughs> so you know, it's the famous hands-to-mouth ratio. Right. So depending on the hands-to-mouth ratio that exists on a uh, exists in a particular family, you know, effort levels are also allocated. And typically, you know, small farmers tend to have uh, you know low hands-to-mouth kind of ratios. Uh, I mean, few working hands and you know uh, many feeding mouths. So they tend to work much harder. And then you know, there is also innovation. So in, on small farms, you know, they do intercropping or multi-cropping. Uh, you know, they put vegetables on the edge of the farm. So all these tend to improve the productivity.
0: So then there are, you know, almost natural limits to how large a family farm could get. No.
2: Absolutely, and there is also a lower limit. You know, mm. if it if it gets too small then, mm. you know, it, it, it uh, becomes inefficient.
0: Yeah, you just divide it into too many parts. Exactly. Right. So, yeah.
2: but, but uh, you know, uh, maybe we are jumping into another topic, but, you know, that also makes a case for a, uh, you know, a relatively egalitarian land redistribution. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you for, said, yeah, yeah. which is, you know, there is Some an Some kind upper of limit. correlation
0: between family
1: sizes and family hmm. units. Yeah. Nitin? I, I find this fascinating because if you look at the forest sector, hmm. it's the absolute opposite in terms of a third of the country's area is controlled by the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it was timber then or other commodities that are being produced from the forest, which is carbon, uh, that's being now sold, right? Finding market for carbon is a big thing through REDD+, and certain other international carbon trade treaties. Um, that uh, So the, the, the push is coming from the state against uh, redistribution, if you may, of, a, of, of that kind of commodity, whether under the British or currently now. For instance, a pushback against the Forest Rights Act, uh, where people are seeking both individual ra- property in the forest and community forest rights. Uh, so so there is this complete centralization.
0: So Nathan, who owns forests? State? In the Ind- state? Not just in India, but around the world? It's, is there varies. such a thing as a private forest?
1: So even in India, in Maharashtra, so because of the extreme diversity of tenurial regimes, right. uh, you have private forests in Maharashtra. Right. Uh, you don't have it in Karnataka. Right. Uh, there are leased forests. And so if you look at even districts within Karnataka, you have enormous diversity of uh, tenurial arrangements. Uh, state leased, uh, um, even amongst unclassed forests, classed forests, and so on. So, it's a very complicated.
0: Uh, and what are the ecological implications of, uh, of whether there's ownership or not, whether you just have some kind of a use right, as an economist might say?
1: I mean, the implications are diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but one can't be normative about sure. what the implications are. Right, because what a good forest is really depends on what it's being used for, yeah. and who defines it. Yeah. So the state would define a good forest as timber, high canopy, yeah. you know, high biomass. Yeah. A Soniga would want an open canopy, yeah. you know, a woodland savanna. So right and on this show, you've talked about the definition, how the British defined jungle and yeah. forest, yeah. and how the Adivasis would define jungle and forest very differently. Yeah. Uh, so the ecological implications, therefore, are derived and locally uh, defined
3: but i think what is also interesting is that there is the same kind of tenurial diversity even in settled agriculture mm-hmm. right so if you look at Punjab, you will see a large number of people who you know middle middle and large farmers who you know have their own land so land
0: holdings are larger the l-
3: larger land holdings they also lease inland land. As well as there is some leasing out as well. But in a place like Bihar, you will see a very large number of people who are tenant farmers. Right. Right. Who, like the landowners in a village may all be living in the city. And, you know, 19 or 20 farmers will be cultivating on tenant relations, some sharecroppers, some tenancy contracts, uh, say 20 acres of land right. And the landowner is actually sitting uh, elsewhere. But this is interesting, because the state will only give his the subsidies to the landowner. So tenant farmers, you know, really struggle because of the way land ownership has been and and,
0: and does this inverse relationship hold when tenant farmers tend to it, as opposed to, you know, the
2: So, the inverse relationship will hold, even when there are tenants. Hmm. The only, uh, you know, uh, thing about which we should be a little careful is, you know, there are multiple kinds of tenancy. Right. I mean, there's sharecropping. Right. You know, uh, where, you know, land is leased out to, you know, a farmer, uh, a tenant, and uh, there's a sharing of the crop at the end of the period. Some kind of revenue share. And there's a lot of discussion, you know, it's risk sharing you know uh, there are 50 explanations for why share cropping exists <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, the other uh, kind of tenancy is fixed rent tenancy hmm. and fixed rent tenancy in principle uh, is identical to you know self-owned uh, farming yeah so the incentive structure is exactly the same yeah so there you know uh, one should be certain uh, uh, that you know uh, the inverse size uh, Uh, you know, productivity uh, relationship would hold the same way as cell phone farms.
0: There is, uh, Mekla, do you want to talk a little bit about this mapping of crops to Markets. I mean, do different kinds of crops have different kinds of markets? So uh, I know we've discussed how agricultural markets might be different or similar to markets in general, however embedded they might be. So we don't want to make it too abstract. No, but
3: but absolutely. So I think one very interesting thing about the tenancy thing is that we are seeing these very diverse relations of production. Hmm. And the relations of production are already tied into relations of exchange because you mentioned the interlocked example of credit where you're being given credit for... For production yeah but you will give it back at the time through the crop in the post-harvest thing right so it's a hypothecated kind of loan that you're um, working with and there's an interlocking so would you call this production will you call it exchange will you call it like consumption and one of the things that makes these markets so complicated is that it's actually all very related. Yeah. Right so most of the time when we talk about agricultural markets we don't want to move backward to production relations. Right? But a big reason why the market looks how it does is because of constraints in production. So for example credit, right? So if I need credit the person who has credit is also the person I, who takes my grain as collateral. It binds you know production and exchange together here right and then we talked in the uh, you know case about what happens in, when you process things right so you take paddy you process it into rice and then you retail it now you're connecting production exchange Processing and then at some point consumption, which could be state welfare distribution as well as c- consumption into private markets. And then there are all the byproduct markets for paddy, right? Where husk will be used, biofuels, all sorts of other markets that also get integrated. So, what I think is a feature of these markets is enormous complexity but enormous diversity. So, like, I think diversity, complexity, and dynamism are these three characteristics of these markets that. I think are really definitive, right? And I think one of the reasons we don't do that much empirical work on them is because it is very tough. Yeah. You know, it's really tough to get to grips with what's going on in any one context, right? So if these are the, the characteristics of these markets, then on top of that, you add commodity specificity yeah right which is that absolutely there's a big difference even between wheat and rice right two food grain markets now forget food grains versus pulses versus uh, you know fruits and vegetables versus tendu leaves versus (laughs) milk Um, right if you just take wheat and rice two things we just think of as food grains paddy firstly rice is not rice it is first paddy right So paddy is a very different thing than rice. Now paddy comes out of the field and then paddy is sold to mills and then paddy has to be processed. But you can also locally process it and parboil it and you can have a local processing. Then you can get it to a mill and then it'll have further markets. And we know rice markets in India are anything but homogenous in terms of the varieties of rice um, that are produced across the country. Wheat is actually quite different from um, rice because wheat can actually be retailed straight from the field. Right, because you can actually have much more local processing in a chakki. Although most of us in urban areas have atta, You'll find even many households, even urban households, still buy their wheat as full wheat and get the person right there to process it in his chakki. Yeah. Right. Even in kirana shops in Bombay and certainly in Delhi, this will be very common. So paddy and wheat markets are completely different on the ground because paddy markets, the millers play an absolutely central role. Wheat markets, there's a lot more trade in wheat itself, right? That goes to more distant processors or goes directly into wholesale markets, right? So even two very similar looking like what we would call food grain commodities have very different lives.
0: So the number of steps needed or processes needed before it will be makes different. its way to the plate would. Correct.
3: Would. And even the perishability is slightly different in these two commodities. Now, if you add a commodity like sugarcane. Into right. the mix where within twenty-four hours you have to sell it to the processor. Perishability is completely different. Yep. Right? And perishability absolutely changes intermediation. Yeah. So an Artya in a uh, sabzi mandi in Harda had a beautiful description. Hmm. He said uh, or ki nahi rukti hai. Right It won't uh, Sell So it has to be Just ripe For it it to be Bought and consumed And You Won't be able To keep it Ripe
0: But the thing is That these are such Crazily complex Problems Right I mean It's a very I mean Both at the Biological Scientific Kind of level At the level of markets At the level of How you design things The number of These are such Tough decisions For the farmers No
3: Yeah they're incredibly what to, complicated. What to
0: sow, what to harvest, yeah. and to harvest, and you need yeah. to make these decisions so many months in advance.
3: Yeah, they are, are very are complicated. And I think one of the big, I mean, failures I think of all of us to Indian farmers and to this larger challenge that we face is refusing to get into the detail. Hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many talks I have now given where people are like, I'm so glad somebody's working on agricultural markets and within three minutes of this they have just glazed over right. a blankness. And then they'll tell me, what a fascinating talk. And they've actually really not paid any attention. And then that it's very complicated. Now, we cannot use that as, an, you know, as a reason to just abdicate figuring out solutions for it. And it is that complicated. And I think the difference is that you know, agricultural marketing law also in India has focused actually quite rightly on the farmer, right, at the farmer level. So it has been a Mundi act and it has really focused on trying to give farmers a fair deal of exchange at the point of the closest point of exchange. Right. But they've not always taken into account the larger agricultural commodity market, right? So, you have something to say, Nathan?
1: Yeah, I wanted to add, I mean, just in terms of uh, the choice of what to grow, and uh, we were talking about it briefly before we came in here, is the idea of animals and, you know, that something that they, you know, that's really not within their purview at all. The idea Uh, of animals? No, uh, uh, wildlife, human, what's largely called human-wildlife conflict, right? Sure. Uh, so the choice of uh, whether to grow a millet uh, Yeah, it would depend the, on
0: whether like in the coffee case whether the wild boar would come and eat it off. Exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so a lot of the
1: switching is to crop that the animals will not eat. Yeah. Nilgai in Rajasthan and yeah, Pradesh same thing wild right? boar. It has to be pest resistant in some shape or form. Right. So suddenly... So that narrows what you can then grow on on your piece of land. And no, I think I think the larger problem. or
0: the bigger question which one has to try and grapple with is that as it is even at a small scale for a small plot of land these are such complex decisions to make. And when you try to globalize and integrate different markets, bring financial instruments, create an exchange, and does anyone get the hang of the whole thing, or or are we all at the mercy of something I don't know, maybe abstract, something which is like so some ghost that we all end up creating. No, why aren't markets just simply local? Why aren't we just picking stuff up from the farm next door? Would 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 everything be more expensive then?
2: Well, it's a question of you know uh, you know different because factors. obviously
0: the efficiency argument is yeah. made
2: right whenever you. I mean, not everything can be grown, you know, in a particular locality and not everything should be grown in a particular locality given the soil conditions, the climate yeah. conditions. And therefore, uh, you know, when when you uh, grow the right kind of crops for the local ecological conditions, and given the soil fertility and so forth, uh, you know, you do produce this long-distance exchange processes. But
0: what I find interesting in what you did not say is that not everything should be consumed everywhere, right? I mean, why do I want to consume like salmon sitting here in Bombay or whatever I like? Yeah, correct. Because well, you in know, a way, if you globalize consumption, you want to consume like truffle or whatever, something from obscure parts of the world. And that's when you set in motion all sorts of things now. Obviously, you can't wish desires but, but away. Once know, it's there, it's this, there.
2: But you know, sort of globalized uh, you know, consumption hmm. is not new. You know, for the longest time, you've had global markets. You know, there have been world systems, Yeah. you know, stretching back to two millennia.
0: Even in agricultural markets?
2: Absolutely, you yeah. know, uh, so we, uh, I mean, it, it intensifies, you sure. know. Uh, agricultural kind of exchange intensifies after the 15th, 16th centuries. Mm-hmm. And after 17th, 18th centuries, you begin to see a large homogenization mm-hmm. of certain kinds of agricultural markets. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, you know, uh, I mean, when you take something like textiles, right, cotton textiles, uh, you know, that's basically an agricultural product you know, which is processed and made into textiles.
0: And goes to Manchester. Exactly. Used to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, silk, for instance, you know, which went from China to all over the world. Right. And these are ancient markets, right? I mean, these are not new. So it's it's not that, you know, uh, we have globalized... It's not like this has
0: happened yesterday. Yesterday. This is,
2: you know, people have preference for, you know, different kinds of products. And people have expressed that preference, you know, in multiple contexts. And, you know, when they come across different kinds of goods, uh, you know, they they do want to access them.
3: And also food cultures change, right? Yeah. So we, we were talking earlier about sugar yeah. having been a luxury you know, commodity and then becoming a mass commodity within a period of like a, you know, a short period of 100, 200 years. Yeah. Um, And its connection with the industrial revolution and how it really became about calories and working people. And there's this lovely book by Sidney Mintz called Sweetness and Power, which looks at that story. Uh, But equally, look look at Ragi today. Hmm. right in india it's, it's going becoming that. something that yeah. actually has gone the other way it yeah. used to be thought as poor man's food whereas many of the people cultivating ragi are moving to wheat and rice and would rather be eating non-millets so there's this grains. interesting
0: traffic of uh, but elites, in all directions i mean
3: all of us want to you know feed our family is now increasingly ragi and millets and uh, there's definitely a niche market of people willing to pay a slightly higher price to eat millets hmm. right whereas there's this big debate about how do we get more people growing millets to eat millets and the government is actually trying to promote it both try and put it in in states like Odisha, try and put it into the public distribution system but also repopularize millets and there's an is officer in Odisha who's just bemoaning the fact that you know why did oats succeed <laughs> why on earth are indians eating oats you know he's like this is just an complete disaster uh, why is this happening so I think it is happening. happened some I mean,
0: entrepreneur has spotted an opportunity and in and so, so the...
3: we're eating oats but we won't eat this indigenous you know type of um, of, of, of millets and right. he is sort of quite uh, distressed about this and So I think some of these questions as to why certain preferences, why, you know, are also then linked to larger scale questions of industrial transformation or different kinds of economic change. um, Right. The question of processed versus fresh produce. Right. In India, we still predominantly eat fresh produce. Very little processing, even our dals and our um, um, flour and all. I mean, it's very it's there is a certain amount of processing, but the amount of fortification, for example, that you'd see in processed food in the US is completely different from what you'd see in Indian markets, right? Indian market people will always say, you know, when we would discuss this, that it's the poor in the US are more likely to eat processed food and the rich will eat fresh food. Yeah. Right? So it's cheaper to buy processed food yeah. in the US than they it just is have to longer buy fresh shelf
0: life. You have you get longer to sell you can Whereas do it at mass in scale. India,
3: processed food is still more expensive than fresh food
0: what do the Adivasis eat Nothing. of course i know there's no one adivasi bracket under which everyone sits i get it but um do you see the reverse problem there like would you love to find the equivalent of oats there but you struggle to
1: I, I think the shift to uh, what's happened in, in, at least in the area that we work in, the shift from, first of all, 40 years ago from shifting cultivation to settled, right. where a lot of them lost land, right. um, and then had to, therefore, shift the work in the coffee plantations for labor. So that the immediate then selling their labor for cash um, and the restrictions on forest produce harvest, which was tuber which was, you know, what they what they got the starch and from. And was
0: coffee alien to them until it got there?
1: No. Coffee came to these areas 150 years ago. Right. Uh, so, they knew coffee, but they didn't have land to grow it in. It also takes a lot of labor and expertise to grow coffee, which they've now acquired. So, coffee and therefore cash and labor and cash meant buying on the PDS, hmm. right? Exactly this, this sort of shift in, in diet from millet, beans, and a whole diversity of greens
2: hmm. to just
1: buying... From the market. So you've got that shift. So but it's not all homogenous. They've still people in the drier, rain fed tracts that can't grow coffee that's growing.
0: But is it a part it's of growing. their culture? Is it a part of their own food habits? Coffee. N- I know they're no. growing for like whoever is going to the market, but it's it's no. it's not a part
1: of their palate. It's not. I mean coffee of course is I uh, mean they they sell completely. Everything sure. they grow That it's is sold.
3: But you asked this really interesting question that, you know, are all farmers are they becoming labor? Yeah. Right. And I think this is they're right from the beginning of what you were, you know. Because when we, what's
0: crazy to me yeah. is that it just becomes a commodity so soon, yeah. whatever you produce.
3: Yeah. But the thing is, for farmers, I think whether you're a tenant farmer or a self owning farmer, there is this sense of choice. Now, for the farmers I've worked with, it is not a sense of choice that they take lightly. It's not that they won't tell you about constraints. I mean, I always say that, like, Mondays and markets, agricultural markets are not a good place to do satisfaction surveys. <laughs> nobody's happy, nobody's supposed to be happy. Now if farmers are not happy, traders are not happy, labor's not happy, corporate corporate. And looks state, like most of them are stoned anyway. Right? So and consumers are certainly not happy because they almost certain that they could get a cheaper price. But at the same time, even within that, I think choice matters. So for farmers in Harda, when they no longer had to, you know, sort of buy seed when they could save seed after the canal irrigation came and there was a period of time where productivity increased and they could retain their own seed for the next season, that notion of seed sovereignty hmm. was often described as the first degree of sakshamta. You know that we level ho gaya, we became somewhat capable, right? We, we became, you know, we became farmers in a sense, right? Although they knew that they're always cultivated, this sense of having... But there's a market for seeds, though. There's, of course, a market for seed. But the point is, this idea that you still exercise choice in it, right? So I think contract relationships are very interesting. When you are in contract relationships, whether the farmer feels... So I would constantly hear the difference between... paraya and apna, like we are doing labor for someone else hmm. and we are cultivating for ourselves. Cultivating doesn't mean eating ourselves. Sure, it sure, means sure. I am selling in the market, but this is my produce. Right? That the point of chance Is that
0: is that the reason, why, why there are so many petty farmers around the world? Is, is is it by and large I mean I know you gave that inverse relationship example which is beautiful, but is that is is that one of the reasons why there's so many small land holdings and if people can help it, they...
2: So there are two things there, you know. Uh, one is, uh, you know, there is a fundamental distinction hmm. between farmers and workers. Yeah. Uh, and the distinction... I think the question
0: is whether most farmers are becoming more and more workers.
2: No, that's what I'll, I'll yeah. talk about, you know. Yeah, okay. uh, so the fundamental distinction is between, you know, uh, uh, having the right to claim the residual, which is what the farmers have, and, you know, getting a wage, you know, for the labor that you perform. So, uh, so that's what distinguishes, you know, smallholder farmers and, you know, wage workers.
0: Yeah, what's your payoff matrix? What right. can you do? Uh,
2: and And, you know, uh, so there could be a certain attraction people might have to becoming residual claimants. Hmm. And there could also be a certain attraction in, uh, you know, uh, having the autonomy of choosing your own cropping pattern, growing your own crop there may be an aspect of, you know, pride, you know, so non-economic kinds of, you know, uh, let's say, you know, cultural sensibilities yeah, yeah. of why you would be attracted to becoming, let's say,
0: somewhat spiritual kind of reason. Yeah.
2: Or, yeah. you know, it could also be, you know, wanting to be uh, a petty commodity producer, you mm. know, a small business owner. Mm. There's a certain attraction, you know, you go to a country like America, uh, you know, there's, that is the rhetoric even until today, you know, <laughs> uh, when, a, when a presidential campaign happens, Uh, Every candidate says, you know, we'll benefit, uh, we'll make policies that will benefit, you know, small business owners. But can
0: that coexist with what Nitin described a while ago, right, where market is almost a compulsion, where you are producing for the market, you anyway mentioned they're a price taker, but yeah, I think it looks like they coexist and they seem...
2: They can coexist, hmm. but uh, there can also be, you know, aspects of structural coercion. So just to Hmm. sort of, you know when you have, you know, uh, deepening processes of interlocking, hmm. so you could be thrown off your autonomy. You know, you could be thrown off your cropping pattern. You know, the money lender basically determines with the seed dealer and the merchant what the farmer should grow, how much they should grow, and what quality of produce should uh, come out, you know, and and the judgment or evaluation of that produce comes from outside. Then, you know, the pride of, you know, owning or you know, working your own land, cultivating your own produce may erode. How time. is
0: it that money lenders continue to have this hold uh, after so many centuries of farming? Because over so many crop cycles, one should have generated so much surplus. No, to it, it just it's so counterintuitive in one's own head because we, sure there are ups and downs, and you're exposed to the vagaries of nature and so on. In a way, the flipped version of this question is that does land have a somewhat capped kind of return profile itself? Does it not allow you to make, you know, whatever, beyond a certain kind of return to begin with? I mean, are you constrained by the very fact that you eventually have to make money off land? No, sure, there are spiritual reasons and so on.
2: No, I have already said, you know, uh, agriculture, you know, most crops in agriculture, you know, have a property of constant returns to scale.
0: But, but that concept number is also a very low number.
2: True. So, the so I would, uh, you know, from my own uh, study of, uh, you know, Indian uh, history and other contexts and, uh, you know, the contemporary context in India, my sense is, you know, uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, surplus production in agriculture uh, and uh, that uh, production of value uh, to address a different kind of question, you know, right. happens in production right. uh, primarily. And you know various market intermediaries in the process of exchange may may siphon off you know the surplus that is produced uh, you know in the process of production itself. So uh, so the 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 answer to your question is you know yes you know a lot of surplus has been produced you know just to you know then the, the <laughs> British Empire hmm. you know uh, derived much of its revenue, hmm. especially in the first hundred years in India, from land revenue. You know, later, you know, the sources begin to change. Right. But, you know, post-1757, you know, until 1850s, uh, the rule of British East India Company, it was land revenue primarily. Yeah. And, you know, Mughal Empire, you know, large empires have been constructed on the basis of, you know, agricultural produce.
0: You set up some mechanism to extract surplus, it all goes
2: there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so the question therefore becomes, uh, you know, is there a way in which farmers who I produce think the question all the-
0: is, are they getting value because they're aggregating over very large tracts of land, or uh, you know what I mean? I mean because the production on a per acre basis or whatever is not high enough, but you, because there's aggregation at the level of whoever, in this case, the British government or the Mughal Empire or some landlord or absolutely, or you know, whatever.
2: it's it's the hmm. you know volume of land, it's the extent of land, but it's also the nature of you know uh, uh, relation that production and exchange have yeah and and uh, just to sort of you know there have been sort of three exploitative structures in agriculture mm-hmm. you know one is uh, you know slave based mm-hmm. you know and and this has you know even in recent times like you know up to 19th century
0: which is by and large free labor
2: uh, f- yeah, f- free meaning yeah, labor free is though. not, I mean, workers are not free, <laughs> you know, uh, cap- yeah. you know, the, the slave owner, yeah. you know, gets free labor from the slave. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, even very recently, you know, until 19th century, you had cotton plantations in U.S. South or sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean. So that's one kind of arrangement. Sure. Then you have, you've had feudal arrangements, you know, which have not necessarily contributed to a- accumulation of capital. But, uh, you know, it has contributed to, uh, you know, extra surplus extraction, Mm -hmm. and which has fed into, you know, all these uh, uh, ostentatious consumption practices. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what we see emerging today, uh, especially over the last 30 years, is the gradual erosion of smallholders. This is connecting back to the earlier conversation of uh, farmers becoming more and more like workers. So they're either being kicked off their autonomy Uh, and made to feel like workers and made to act like workers. And, you know, even though they are growing crops, you know, they feel like they're just wage workers. Or in reality, you know, lands are being grabbed, lands are being appropriated. And, you know, large corporations are taking over the entire function of agriculture, uh, either directly by hiring wage workers or indirectly through practices like contract farming. Right. Where, you know, uh, uh, large corporations like you know, Unilever or Monsanto. You sure. know, they get into contracts with smallholders, but you know, they the smallholder loses autonomy. You know, no control over cropping pattern, no control over you know whether what uh, is produced can be sold in the market. That's determined by the contractor. Uh, so you know what. So so these are the three sort of exploitative arrangements uh, which have existed at different points in history. But I
3: think what is so interesting is that India is in a situation where actually the last two are things that you will see. Right, Like in certain parts of India and you know there's no doubt that it is happening uh, in different regions and there have been debates around BT, there have been debates about sure. increasing dependence on seed um, you know in certain places, certainly hybrids um, and, and you know you see it a lot in fresh fruits and vegetables as well um, in places like Bihar and Orissa with maize you know so there has been this this movement but at the same time um, you see a remarkable resistance to it. And one of the reasons for that resistance is actually smallholders and diversification. So, this is in that sense a high volume, low margin business. And so, big seed companies or large agri commercial interests, their big interest is in channel control. Yeah. Right? It's about being able to control, control the channel yeah. from. Uh, production all the way to consumption and its by product markets. Yeah. As well as a play in its derivatives and futures markets. So it's yeah. the entire system, right, that you want to look at. And in India it's quite interesting. I sometimes say that the the A B C D of the global grain trade is often called, you know, sort yeah, of A D M Bungi Kargil, Dreyfus, you know A yeah. B C D. The A B C D in the Indian grain trade when I was in Madhya Pradesh was Arath. Broker, Chopal, and Dabba, there were different <laughs> kinds of things happening. Yeah. And in some ways, this ABCD was. You know, holding holding off and quite irritating for large corporate capital. The good
0: news is that just the super small holdings and so on, it also makes it very difficult to aggregate. Yes. So
3: what these guys would tell me when I would interview... In a interview, kind of way. Ah, so when I would interview the big corporations, one of the things they would keep saying is, the problem with Indian markets is that there are not enough barriers to entry. <laughs> right? Which was a wonderful giveaway line because yeah. that's like completely anti-market and it's yeah. absolutely the impulse that you were describing which is a monopolistic or you know at least an oligopolistic impulse that these guys have been able to produce these institutions have been able to produce so what? That's interesting so I think the trade-off here is diversification and scale right and the point you were making about producing for um, you know large corporations in a state like Punjab and Haryana it's also producing for the state
0: for so the, ac- for, you mean for the PDS? For or the that? PDS, so yeah. a
3: large number of farmers there actually have very little choice now so about buying anything. other producing than for wheat and rice. Just and one
0: customer yeah.
3: trying to get diversification. I mean, you don't see markets. How is um, the timber
0: functional. market different, Nathan? Is that do they have similar kind of characteristics?
1: I don't know enough about timber markets just because we don't have much of it now, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, hmm. The forest department itself has been large green felling bands across the country, and and so on. So we don't have; it's mostly outside on private land uh, as part of the social forest. Is there a
0: feeling that forests need to be protected from agriculture? Is there is there this gradual expansion of the farmland into the forest? It's
1: uh, you know because I one can
0: sentimentalize it on both sides, and you know right. that is but.
1: So there is, I mean, there's, a, there's that line being drawn. And I think the line is coming down really hard, mm-hmm. right, in the sense that forests are forests. And with conservation, you have carbon, you have a whole range of good global goods that... Which happen inside. Which, which happen inside. And they need somehow to be protected because of different kinds of commodities that get produced there. And so two things are happening as a result of that. So sufficiently large population that's dependent on it Right, that's getting marginalised and having to sell the labour, as Vamsi put it. Right, and uh, that's that's we're seeing that uh, across the country. The other thing that's happening is a whole range of certification processes for honey and you know, ha- sustainably certified. harvested amla, and so on and so forth. Right? Why do sort I of-
0: sense some irony there?
1: But, yeah, yeah. We're getting there because I think <laughs> you you're recreating these people as somehow environmental subjects. Yeah. that have that I've got this, you know, sustainability bone in their body, you know, that everything around them is, is they're forest-based, they're, 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 they're nob- noble untouched. savages. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so you created this uh, subject that's not agrarian, it's forest, and therefore, you know, you sort of, the, the diversity that Mekla talked about is being, is again being narrowed. Right? How you, do those you,
0: people receive it? Do they feel like they are being played?
1: I... Don't have a good sense of that, but I, I I'd imagine that uh, you know on the one hand you're losing access to assets, hmm. such as land. You're being denied actual assets, even under the Forest Rights Act. There's no ownership to land, yeah. so they can't go get loans from the mark from from banks. You can't get Panchayat money to invest in irrigation and so on. And on the other hand, you've been you you being characterised and identified as a forest dependent sustainable harvester so you've you're narrowing the options available and given what we've heard <laughs> this afternoon um i think you know all of all of the other market availability is being played by a few players and with niche markets and the volatility that's surrounding all of that uh, fad you know the the uh, a product that i studied uh, which was harvested from the western ghats was garcinia gummigutta
0: what is garcinia
1: it's a it's a it's a tree uh, fruit that comes out of the tree uh, of, uh, of of the species Garcinia used in Kerala in uh, as tamarind and fish curries, right? Very kokum. It's related to kokum. Um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a wild fruit. It's a wild fruit uh, extracted and sold sold in the U.S. as a weight loss product. Right <laughs> in the time that it w- did well. A lot of people were in the forest harvesting this right. and then there was a crash because there was one paper that called to doubt the efficacy of this particular weight loss product and over with, from one season to the next, there was a crash in, in the price and with it fell a lot of, uh, uh, lot of household income. So in, is Garcinia still parts. growing? It's going, but only for the domestic market, Yeah, for but, Kerala and Cork and not so much.
3: But in one sense, I mean, this is also one of those characteristics of primary produce markets, right? Yeah. That... The volatility that they are can exposed be very to, that you know, that that's also the reason why the economies more users are ex- it
0: has, the more you can process it. Right.
3: And that I mean, historically, yeah. and at least my understanding of what is supposed to be the teleology of you know a Crops. developed society, you're supposed to move from having a very high dependency on primary produce and agriculture to manufacturing and then to services.
0: That's the journey of right. corn, that's right? That's the
3: journey that you're suppo- And that's the journey of the economy also at large. At least that's at least what it's supposed to be. <laughs> and we know that in India, that hasn't been the trajectory because, you know, people haven't actually moved out of farming. Now, there are questions about the structure of the economy in terms of its ability to produce jobs. Um, but there's also the very interesting feature that farmers are not giving up land. You
0: already ticked say off by right? uttering the word jobs. <laughs>
3: yeah. No, but they're also not, uh, you know, sort of leaving land. So I mean, to, to make the point, I think agriculture, whenever you have a surplus in agriculture, this is what I noticed in the place that I worked in in Harda after canal irrigation. And, you know, there were two interesting stories. Um, and I'll say them very quickly. The first was actually the removal of that layer of intermediaries mm-hmm. um, that happened when so in the 1980s a very interesting sort of set of things happened canal irrigation came a new crop soybean replaced cotton and the government actually intervened in markets with a clear political calculus to attack, in that case, it was Digvijay Singh, you know, the Banya base of the BJP so traders. the traders, yeah. Yeah, and the removal of the traders. But the reason this worked was because it was conjunctural. Mm-hmm. Right? right. There was a fundamental change in the dynamics of production. There was also a change, therefore, in credit markets. There was a change in inputs. There was a change in, you know, dynamism in the development of output markets. And that's why they were able to, because the, The market reform happened at the same time, they were able to actually remove a layer of intermediaries uh, and, therefore, in some senses, you know, free the farmer or give him theoretically more options. I mean, it's also ironic that that whole change for the next 10 years, farmers in Harda told you it was the worst relationship that they had with traders in the mandi, because (laughs) now they did not matter anymore, their grain mattered. And so the degree of grain theft increased considerably. So you had an improvement on one end with the removal of some intermediaries, but you had a deterioration in market practice when it came to weighment. Right. It also shows you how complicated these things are. But also, once farmers started doing this, right? So there was an increase in surplus. They were now selling directly to traders in the mandi. The first thing they did was improve their land, right? Improve the quality of their own land.
0: They invested it so back in the land. In
3: invested back in the land and improving the irrigation system, getting the water in there, leveling the land, clearing, you know, better seeds, then, you know, machinery, tractors, all of those things, the first level. They also then, if they could, bought land, Right. Right? This was a time where the land market became somewhat dynamic, and some people did exit. And actually, some of the older Malguzars of that period were also holding on to pieces of land which they sold at that time to cultivators. And you saw an in- expansion in some people's land holding. Interesting. So that happened. The third thing, though, and this was very interesting, is that once they did that and land sort of figure, they started looking at the town. So they started investing in education. Yeah. They started in, So investing. And was a, so on and so on. So there was a diversification. Yeah. So this you could call a sort of surplus sustained diversification. And your assets right?
0: kind of spill out of the agri... Okay. Can, can you into, diversify into your family? Absolutely. So, what's the future? Why don't we end with that? What's the future of where all of this is going? Obviously, a big question can be so, wrapped in five you know, minutes.
2: So, when when I mean, uh, since Mekla I mean that that was very interesting what you just said, and I mm-hmm. think you know uh, it makes a case. I mean, Michael is making a very strong case to also create a, a an environment that facilitates you know smallholder farming, you know that supports smallholder farming especially in the absence of employment. So that's where I'll start, you know, talking about the future of farming, you know, not just in India, but you know, my sense is, you know, there are three issues that need to be addressed, uh, you know, by people across the world and farmers and uh, you know, the function of agriculture. Sure. The first is food security, you know, and food security is absolutely essential. How we are going to do it, uh, you know, so if, if we take the current trend of the last 30 years, it would seem as though the corporate, uh, you know, firms uh, can take over land and, you know, uh, convert a whole range of farmers into wage workers and produce enough food for the world somewhere, you know, in some tracts across the world and then distribute it to the whole world. It That's seems solving like the a,
0: starvation problem. So It, people it seems starve. like
2: a neat solution. Right. But there are two issues with that. Right. One issue is the question of employment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in countries like India and this China, is
0: by its nature less labor-intensive.
2: Absolutely, because yeah. you know, large corporations will make agriculture like an industry. But should agriculture
0: exist just to employ people?
2: N- not only. Hmm. Let me let me make the two three points. You know, so employment is a key thing you know once uh, you know farmers uh, get adequate support they may start deriving meaning again from agriculture you know there won't be distress migration there won't be migration out of meaninglessness you know of this whole activity where they have no autonomy there's no That's interesting. spiritual sort of you know yeah. uh, you know satisfaction but the there is a third issue which is uh, which is crucial you know for food security and uh, for how we conduct our agriculture which is uh, the question of biodiversity and you know, uh, and this is closely interlinked with the question of sustainability. And, and uh, you know, so, so you can, you can also solve the biodiversity problem. You need a lot of biodiversity in order to, you know, maintain food security, you know, uh, not just different uh, you,
0: kinds of crops, but also different kinds of subspecies within the same. Exactly. Yeah. You
2: know, seeds, not just you know, two kinds of corn, but no, exactly. You know, a lot of variety within and, and, but why uh, so?
0: Why? How, where does that normativity come from? Uh,
2: it's not normativity. It's I'm saying you know it's a necessary condition for food security because you know certain strains you know may uh, may be wiped out by pests. So you need enough diversity, enough variety, sure. you know, for long-term sustainability. Sure. So the question becomes, you know, you could solve the question of food food security by by maintaining seed banks. You know, corporations can maintain seed banks, or you know, Vavilov centers. You know, the famous Russian, uh, you know, seed banker. Uh, you know, who maintained a lot of biodiversity. You know, you could maintain Wavilo centers kind of a thing. They could get attacked, you know, the, in World Wars, you know, Wavilo centers were abandoned. So the the strongest, you know, the, the most uh, sustainable way of maintaining Biodiversity is to seed. actually
0: have it as a part of your farming practices. Exactly. It is it, the in situ. In situ. Plates as opposed to in some seed banks somewhere.
2: In situ biodiversity. In situ. Which is, which is an attribute of smallholder farming. You know, they experiment with multiple kinds of seeds. If you go to northeast of India... Will this, this
0: happen? Will this happen, within In situ biodiversity, all kinds of crops and plants.
1: So, it's actually fascinating that Mamsi brought this up because I was going to say that this whole there is in conservation uh Mamsi is
0: talking like an ecologist now yeah he is We've fact, swapped so, roles. so thank you it's the best Mamsi, kind of interdisciplinary conversation <laughs> <that. laughs> <laughs> <That, laughs>
1: because there is uh, the, the this this idea of land sparing versus land sharing hmm. you know so what what the land sparing school is saying is that let's let's reduce the num- amount of area that we farm hmm. or use urbanize or live in and intensify practice in those areas And And spare some land. Spare a large tract of land. And E.O. Wilson's new book called Half Earth is bang in that that whole discussion. Let
0: diversity flourish there.
1: Let biodiversity flourish there, right? So it it takes away from what you're saying. So it's, it's it's antithetical, you know, because for that kind of practice, which is smallholders, biodiverse, you need to have them fragmented. You need to have them dispersed. You need to make the forest because that's also a repository of a whole range of whether it's anti-pests and uh, a whole range of, you know, uh, insect pe- pathogens and so on. So you need you need diversity of land uses as much as diversity of species within that land. So this, what we're seeing now, this territorialization in some sense of conservation, of urbanization, of agriculture, is is... is yeah. It's unfortunately the scenario that we're being faced
3: with.
0: We'll end with you, Mekla. Where are we going? What's the future?
3: So I think, I mean, they've already, I think this idea of biodiversity and diversification is so crucial. When it comes to markets, I think it's working out arrangements, with farmers, with, you know, particularly keeping for small and marginal farmers at the center to think about what kind of institutional forms, what kind of organizational support. Including design
0: markets farm, around them. Yeah,
3: design to, markets differently to, uh, and um, sort of thinking about how they'll participate, right? And what are the the sort of tensions between diversity and scale? Right, because markets are dynamic; they also correct. So it's not as if we'll go down one path, and that's going to be. I mean, this has been one of the big problems that the design and And markets can also evolve. But the design and functioning of markets, for example, when you think about agricultural marketing law in India, has really focused around cereals. And it has focused. It came out of the crisis of food security in the 1960s. But Ramsay
0: has solved that already. Yes, yeah, so.
3: <laughs> <So> we've, <laughs> we've we've uh, solved okay. that challenge. But I think you know, just to just one other point to, to think about when we when we think about biodiversity in the forest and the farm is also the urban. And I think here it's interesting because David Ludden always you know makes this point right that for a very large part of Indian history, urbanization happened within agriculture. Right. Right? And so if we stop thinking about. But now
0: somehow agro is the same as rural.
3: Correct. So if we stop. We first realise that the rural has always been more than agriculture. But we also understand that the agrarian world has always been much more than the rural, right? If we eat food, we are part of an agrarian world. And all of us do not think of ourselves as agrarian citizens at all. I don't think that's
0: an option we have to But we
3: are absolutely agrarian citizens. So I think that reframing of what it means to be, you know, a member of an agricultural community as consumers uh, is, you know, a pretty important part of that.
0: Terrific. That's a good note to end this on and uh, hope to have you soon again. Thanks for making it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thanks.